Hello and welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. Lately, things have been challenging and uncertain. We're enduring an order to shelter in place, trying to read the news, but not too much, and prioritize self-care. Like many of you, we're in need of some relief. So we'd like to provide you with some. Episodes in this series, which we're calling Coronavirus Relief, may sound a bit different from those we've produced in the past, the ones that tell narrative stories drawing from our collection of oral histories. But like many of you, we here at the Oral History Center are in need of a break. We'll be adding some new episodes in this coronavirus relief series with stories from the field, things that have been on our minds, interviews that have been helping us get through, and find small moments of happiness. This week, you'll be hearing from me, Shanna Farrell. These are strange, challenging times that we're living through. As we shelter in place, near and far, trying to reduce our chances of contracting the novel coronavirus. Each day brings news of something else, the dust barely settled from the day before. It's forced us to adapt quicker than we thought possible. Or maybe that's just me. As the fallout from this global pandemic unfolds, I've been watching as an industry that I love, food and beverage, collapse. Bars and restaurants all over the world including in the Bay Area, have closed their doors indefinitely. There are over half a million restaurant workers in San Francisco alone, many of whom are scrambling to stay on their feet. My partner, who manages a bar in the heart of a thriving neighborhood, was temporarily laid off, along with over a thousand other employees in his company alone. But as their income and health insurance evaporated, people in the service industry have banded together creating fundraisers and support groups. Maybe there just is some hope in the dark. This community-driven spirit is one of the reasons why I cherish the food and beverage industry. It's also made me think about Rebecca Solnit's 2009 book, A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. Solnit chronicles how people pull together in times of crisis, starting from the 1906 earthquake to September 11th, 2001. As a realist who tries my best to be optimistic, I'm hoping that we can all take a page out of this book, the restaurant industry and beyond, and emerge from this pandemic stronger than when it found us. Here's an excerpt from the beginning of A Paradise Built in Hell, a chapter entitled The Mitzpah Cafe about the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. The Gathering Place. The outlines of this particular disaster are familiar. At 5.12 in the morning on April 18, 1906, about a minute of seismic shaking tore up San Francisco, toppling buildings, particularly those on landfill and swampy ground, cracking and shifting others, collapsing chimneys, breaking water mains and gas lines, twisting streetcar tracks, even tipping headstones and cemeteries. It was a major earthquake centered right off the coast of the peninsular city, and the damage it did was considerable. 
Afterward came the fires, both those caused by broken gas mains and chimneys and those caused and augmented by the misguided policy of trying to blast fire breaks ahead of the flames and preventing citizens from firefighting in their own homes and neighborhoods. The way the authorities handled the fire was a major reason why so much of the city, nearly five square miles, more than 28,000 structures, was incinerated in one of history's biggest urban infernos before aerial warfare. Nearly every municipal building was destroyed, and so were many of the downtown businesses, along with mansions, slums, middle-class neighborhoods, the dense residential commercial district of Chinatown, newspaper offices, and warehouses. The response of the citizens is less familiar. Here's one. Mrs. Anna Amelia Holschauser, whom a local newspaper described as a woman of middle age, buxom and comely, woke up on the floor of her bedroom on Sacramento Street where the earthquake had thrown her. She took time to dress herself while the ground in her home were still shaking, in that air when getting dressed was no simple matter of throwing on clothes. Powder, paint, jewelry, hair switch, all were on when I started my flight down 120 stairs on the street, she recalled. The house in western San Francisco was slightly damaged. Her downtown place of business, she was a beautician and masseuse, was a quote, total wreck. And so she salvaged what she could and moved on with a friend, Mr. Paulson. They camped out in Union Square downtown until the fires came close and soldiers drove them onward. Like thousands of others, they ended up trudging with their bundles to Golden Gate Park, the thousand-acre park that runs all the way west to the Pacific Ocean. There they spread an old quilt, quote, and lay down, not to sleep, but to shiver, with cold from the fog and mist and watch the flames of the burning city, whose blaze shone far above the trees, end quote. On their third day in the park, she stitched together blankets, carpets, and sheets, to make a tent that sheltered 22 people, including 13 children. And Holschauser started a tiny soup kitchen with one tin can to drink from and one pie plate to eat from. All over the city, stoves were hauled out of damaged buildings. Fire was forbidden indoors since many standing homes had gas leaks or damaged flues or chimneys. Or primitive stoves were built out of rubble and people commenced to cook for each other, for strangers, for anyone in need. Her generosity was typical, even if her initiative was exceptional. Holschauser got funds to buy eating utensils across the bay in Oakland. The kitchen began to grow, and she was soon feeding two to three hundred people a day, not a victim of the disaster, but a victor over it and the hostess of a popular social center, her brother's and sister's keeper. Some visitors from Oakland like her makeshift dining camp so well they put up a sign, Palace Hotel, naming it after the burned-out downtown luxury establishment that was reputedly once the largest hotel in the world. Humorous signs were common around the camps and street-side shelters. Nearby on Oak Street, a few women ran the Oyster Loaf and the Chat Noir, two little shacks with their names in fancy cursive. A shack in Jefferson Square was titled The House of Mirth, with additional signs jokingly offering rooms for rent with steam heat and elevators. The inscription on the side of Hoffman's Cafe, another little street-side shack, read, 
Cheer up, have one on me. Come in and spend a quiet evening. A menu chalked on the door of Camp Necessity, a tiny shack, included items, quote, fleas eye raw, 98 cents. Pickled eels, nails fried, 13 cents. Flies leg on toast, 9 cents. Crab's tongue, stewed. Ending with rainwater fritters with umbrella sauce, $9.10. The Appetite Killery may be the most ironic name, but the most famous inscription read, Eat, Drink, and Be Merry, for tomorrow we may have to go to Oakland. Many had already gone there, or to hospitable Berkeley, and the railroads carried many much further away for free. About 300 people had died, at least half the city was homeless, families were shattered, the commercial district was smoldering ashes, and the army from the military base at the city's north end was terrorizing many citizens. As soon as the newspapers resumed printing, they began to publish long lists of missing people and the new location at which displaced citizens and sundered families could be found. Despite or perhaps because of this, the people were for the most part calm and cheerful, and many survived the earthquake with gratitude and generosity. Edwin Emerson recalled that after the quake, quote, when the tents of the refugees and the funny street kitchens, improvised from doors and shutters and pieces of roofing, overspread all over the city, such merriment became an accepted thing. Everywhere, during those long moonlight evenings, one could hear the tinkle of guitars and mandolins from among the tents. Or, passing the grotesque rows of curbstone kitchens, one became dimly aware of the low murmuring of couples who had sought refuge in those dark recesses, as in bowers of love. It was at this time that the droll signs and inscriptions began to appear on the walls and tent flaps, which soon became one of the familiar sights of reconstructing San Francisco. The overworked marriage license clerk had deposed that fees collected by him for issuing such licenses during April and May 1906 far exceeded the totals for the same months of any preceding years in San Francisco." End quote. Emerson had rushed to the scene of the disaster from New York, pausing to telegraph a marriage proposal of his own to a young woman in San Francisco, who wrote a letter of rejection that was still in the mail when she met her suitor in person amid the wreckage and accepted. They were married a few weeks later. Disaster requires an ability to embrace contradiction in both the minds of those undergoing it and those trying to understand it from afar. In each disaster, there is suffering. There are psychic scars that will be felt most when the emergency is over. There are deaths and losses. Satisfaction of newborn social bonds and liberations are often also profound. Of course, one factor in the gap between the usual accounts of disaster and actual experience is that those accounts focus on the small percentage of people who are wounded, killed, orphaned, and otherwise devastated, often at the epicenter of the disaster, along with the officials involved. Surrounding them, often in the same city or even neighborhood, is a periphery of many more who are largely undamaged but profoundly disrupted, and it is the disruptive power of disaster that matters here, the ability of disasters to topple old orders and open new possibilities. This broader effect is what disaster does to society. In the moments of disaster, the old order no longer exists, and people improvise rescues, shelters, and communities. Thereafter, a struggle takes place over whether the old order, with all its shortcomings and injustices, will be reimposed or a new one 
perhaps more oppressive, or perhaps more just and free, like the disaster utopia, will arise. Of course, people who are deeply and devastatingly affected may yet find something redemptive in their experience, while those who are largely unaffected may be so rattled they're immune to the other possibilities. Curiously, people farther from the epicenter of the disaster are often more frightened, but this seems to be because what you imagine as overwhelming or terrifying, while at leisure, becomes something you can cope with when you must. There is no time for fear. There are no simple rules for the emotions. We speak mostly of happy and sad emotions, a divide that suggests a certain comic lightness to the one side and pure negativity to the other. But perhaps we would navigate our experiences better by thinking in terms of deep and shallow, rich and poor. The very depth of emotion, the connecting to the core of one's being, the calling into play of one's strongest feelings and abilities can be rich, even on deathbeds, in wars and emergencies. While that is often assumed to be the circumstances of happiness, sometimes is only insinuated from the depths, or so the plagues of a new and angst among the comfortable suggest. Next door to Holschauser's kitchen, an aid team from the mining boomtown of Tonopah, Nevada, set up and began to deliver wagon loads of supplies to the back of Holschauser's tent. The Nevadans got on so well with the impromptu cook and hostess that they gave her a guest register whose inscription read in part, quote, in cordial appreciation of her prompt, philanthropic, and efficient service to the people in general, and particularly to the Tonopan Board of Trade Relief Committee. May her good deeds never be forgotten. Thinking that the place's Palace Hotel sign might cause confusion, they rebaptized it the Mitzvah Cafe after the Mitzvah Saloon in Tonopah, and a new sign was installed. The ornamental letters spelled out above the name, One Touch of Nature Makes the Whole World Kin, and those below, established April 23, 1906. The Hebrew word mitzvah, says one encyclopedia, quote, is an emotional bond between those who are separated either physically or by death. Another says it was the Old Testament watchtower, quote, where the people were accustomed to meet in great national emergencies. Another source describes it as, quote, symbolizing a sanctuary and place of hopeful anticipation. The ramshackle material reality of Holschauser's improvised kitchen seems to matter not at all in comparison with its shining social role. It ran through June of 1906, when Holschauser wrote her memoir of the earthquake. Her piece is as remarkable for what it doesn't say. It doesn't speak of fear, enemies, conflict, chaos, crime, despondency, or trauma. Just as her kitchen was one of many spontaneously launched community centers and relief projects, so her resilient resourcefulness represents the ordinary response in many disasters. In them, strangers become friends and collaborators. Goods are shared freely, people improvise new roles for themselves. Imagine a society where money plays little or no role, where people rescue each other and then care for each other, where food is given away, where life is mostly out of doors in public, where the old divides between people seem to have fallen away, and the fate that faces them, no matter how grim, is far less so for being shared. Where much once considered possible, both good and bad, is now possible or present, and where the moment is so pressing that old complaints and worries fall away, where people feel important, purposeful, at the center of the world. It is by its very nature unsustainable and evanescent, 
but like a lightning flash, it illuminates ordinary life, and like lightning, it sometimes shatters the old forms. It is utopia itself for many people, though it is only a brief moment during terrible times. And at the time, they managed to hold both irreconcilable experiences, the joy and the grief. Thanks for listening to the Berkeley Remix. We'll catch up with you next time. And in the meantime, from all of us here at the Oral History Center, we wish you our best.